Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 132, The God Gap. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we're continuing this series looking at God, which seems appropriate at this time of year as we come toward the high holidays, whether one believes in God or not, or whatever one's conception of God is. This is certainly a time of year when, in a certain way, God is on a lot of folks' minds. In another way, we don't really talk about it very much. So we thought it would be an interesting time of year and a great opportunity to talk about God, the relationship of Jews and God throughout our history, past, present, and also looking into the future. We also want to remind you that we have a set of resources that we've put together for the month that comes before the High Holidays, the month of Elul, in which traditionally folks uh, prepare and think about the High Holidays coming up so they don't just come up all of a sudden, but you can do some of the thinking and preparation work in advance. We really encourage folks to go to our website, www.judaismunbound.com, and the Elul material is currently on the homepage. So you can check those out, sign up for various opportunities, and just hopefully use those resources in a beneficial way. Our guest today is Eliana Light. She is the founder of The God Project, an educational initiative focused on accessible, meaningful conversations about God and spirituality through ritual, text, and creativity. Eliana is also an award-winning songwriter and educator whose work is about empowering people to make Judaism their own through song, experiential education, and prayer. Eliana has released two albums of original Jewish music, and she also travels around the country, providing artist-in-residence weekends, teaching in conferences, and consulting with synagogues who are trying to create intentional, meaningful prayer experiences for adults and children. Eliana has her MA in Jewish Experiential Education from the Jewish Theological Seminary and has given an Eli talk called The God Gap. So we're really excited to talk about that gap with her today. Eliana Light, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So I watched your Eli talk, which for the benefit of our listeners is a kind of a Jewish version of a TED talk. And what I really understood from it is that your essential idea, your essential assertion is that we should talk about God more, but use the word God less. And I was wondering if you could kind of help us and help our listeners understand that more deeply. Yes, that's absolutely what the thesis of the Eli talk was. I find that especially in liberal Jewish spaces, we don't often talk about God directly. We talk about God indirectly in that God is the main character of the Torah and the focus of our prayers. So if you're in a Jewish space that prays and studies Torah, the idea of God is there. But if you don't actually talk about what that means, has meant in the past and could mean, for individuals and the community as a whole, then it gets stuck in this very biblical God idea and even further to, you know, dude in sky with beard thinking because we live in a Christian culture where God is, you know, came to the earth as a person and we see these images all the time. Um, When I ask students to think about what God is to them or draw God, sometimes it's a Zeus figure And oftentimes we think about God like a Santa Claus, like he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. Um, And if we don't give our students or our congregants or each other, just as lay people, the opportunity to talk about this and deconstruct it, reconstruct it, we get stuck in that idea, which can be very harmful, um, I think. Again, if you believe, if you have a theology of God as a dude in the sky with a big beard and that works for you, like, Gig is interhate, like go right ahead, as they say in Yiddish. Um, But for me, that idea stopped working at a very particular time in my life. And I see it over and over again with my students, with peers my own age, with adults who have no interest in Jewish life whatsoever. That way of looking at God stopped making sense to them, and they were never presented any other alternatives. So I think if we can stop using the word God, which has all of that baggage, we can use the 100 plus other names that are available 
and really open people up to different ways of relating to the divine and the idea that there's something greater than ourselves. In the Jewish tradition, God has one proper name, yod heh vav which we don't know how to pronounce anymore. So the one proper name that God has, we don't even know how to say. And all the other names that we have, like Adonai, Lord, or Elohim, or Shaddai, or in English, some like merciful one, spirit, right? These are all descriptors of how God could work in the world. I like to look at these as mini theologies. It's saying, how do I see the divine working in the world? Or how would I like to see the divine working in the world? Because a lot of them are aspirational. So if we go even just to that proper name, yod heh what's happened over the course of time, and I actually don't know this history and would love to learn if any of your listeners know, how we got to looking at the words yod heh written out and saying Adonai, because that's the default. But the letters of yod heh are not the letters of Adonai. And so the name of God that appears the most, we're defaulting to it as Adonai, as Lord. And that's a metaphor for a divine human relationship that came out of a time when there were lords in the world. And that was the way that power was structured. Just to clarify, the word Adonai, if it were spelled with its actual letters, means my Lord in Hebrew. Yes, yes. Thank you for that clarification. Um, not the same letters as yod heh okay? um, right. And a very specific metaphor for how God works in the world that can be very alienating to some. Um, you know, if you walk into a synagogue and you look at the words on the page, it's Lord, Lord, Lord. And you're like, that's not how I feel that. And the idea of an actual being with actual power over me is difficult for a lot of folks. Um, and so there are lots of ways that we can change that around. And one that's coming more into style now, but has been around a while, is the name Havaya. Now, Havaya actually uses the letters of Yod and He and Vav and He, but flips them around. And it comes from the word, the root, Lihiyot, to be, and really just signifies being, the totality of being, the isness, as a few friends of mine and I call it. Um, and if you replace Yod He Vav He with the totality of being instead of my Lord, it completely changes it. So I really, really love what you just said. And also, I just want to like figure out what it means because um, I even use this language because I've sort of moved past the idea of Lord in most ways. Um, but the totality of being is like a big phrase to use for God. It's, I mean, it's everything. And so I'm wondering if you can help us and help listeners for whom Lord or sort of Zeus-like imagery like you spoke about, uh, man in the sky, is is the default understanding of God. And maybe they haven't engaged with something like the totality of being, this non-dualist idea of God. Like, what does it mean for God to be something other than this, like, figure in in the heavens or in the skies? What does it mean for God to be something that we would call the totality of being? That's a really beautiful question, and it's something I struggle with and think about all the time. Um, again, these are all metaphors. These are all ways of understanding something that exists and the great mystery of the universe. You know, I say at a base level, I was once giving a lecture, and I did this whole thing about how we have to expand our understandings of God and not label God as one thing or another. And then at the question part, someone raised a hand and was like, yeah, but what is God? It's like, no, that's the whole point. <laughs> um, but what I said is that um, God is that which is greater than I. And then how you relate to that, whether you feel obligated to that, that's the theology. Like, that's your cause. How do you describe that in the world? When I envision or understand the divine as the totality of being, it means that those moments where I'm connected to God are those moments where I'm able to sink in and feel myself as part of that world. And I feel like when we talk to people about their spiritual moments, that's the moment. It's a moment where you at once negate yourself and feel a part of something larger than yourself. But through that negation, you actually feel more like yourself maybe than, than you have in a while. I know that for me that happens when I sing with people, when I sing in large groups, um, when I pray in particular contexts, when I see a beautiful sky or something beautiful in nature. Because it's not that it's not just, oh, wow, that mountain is pretty. It's 
that mountain and I are made of the same stuff and part of the same universe, right? I feel like that's where wonder lies. And I think that, you know, if we look at that as the totality of existence, it reminds us that we are connected with each other. It is not just the idea that we're all connected. It's the reality that we are, the reality that we're all part of the same ecosystem. And what I do here makes ripples all over the place. And I think we need that idea, you know, now more than ever. I really want to dig into this idea of metaphor, because I think that metaphors are extremely powerful. And where I feel like I really struggle is that it seems that there are some people who don't see it as a metaphor at all, and who really take these words as, yeah, this is what God is. And maybe I'm not giving people credit, maybe more people than I believe that are observant and that are going to pray all the time, you know, maybe the vast majority of them do see it as a metaphor. That's not my experience of it, but you know, maybe I'm not giving them enough credit, but there are certainly among those, there are some that see it as a metaphor, but somehow are still willing to enter into the set of observances and the religious community that's made up of a lot of people who don't see it as a metaphor. And so then there's, for example, the the idea of Lord, which I imagine in, in the way that you're describing it is a powerful metaphor that came about at a time in history. Yeah, I'm not really sure exactly when either, but a time in history where there were kings. That was, that was the way that the world was governed by kings. And so the idea that God was a Lord, I think it's just the idea that God is on on par and and higher than everybody else in our world that's seen as like the person in charge but in a in a world even as simple as a democratic society which we all live in and aspire to the idea of a lord seems actually countercultural counter to our values and i think that's part of why a lot of jews struggle with it so if you're able to say hey this is a metaphor let's use a different metaphor that might work for a lot of people but then a there are people who really connect to the idea of lord still for whatever reason and there are all these people who don't think it's a metaphor so i'm i'm wondering you know how do we kind of get into all this and, and kind of continue to also see ourselves as one, one people or at a certain point, do we, are we not? You're describing a moment that I find a lot of people have and that I have that happens, you know, if you go through a Jewish education process of whatever sort, or you're just around kind of Torah stories and prayer as a child, there might be a moment where you look around the room and you think, do these people really believe this stuff? And Sometimes the answer is yes, depending on what context you're in. Sometimes the answer is no, but no one's talking about it. We have a habit of teaching Torah stories to children of very young ages, which sometimes I think is beautiful and sometimes I think is very harmful, right? We teach the creation story to kindergartners because it has animals and counting and there are lots of songs and books about it and it's really fun. And I remember I started thinking about this when I was the music teacher at a synagogue and we sang the super fun song about how God created the world in seven days. And then a kid looked at me and was like, is that true? I didn't know how to say, well, there's truth with a small T and truth with a big T. And there are things that are true in history. And then there's the great, you know, myth of our people as, you know, Rabbi Neil Gilman would say like our foundational myth. And that's what this is. And that might even be truer than true. Like, you can't explain that to a kindergartner. We learn the story of Noah because it has animals and rainbows but like the whole world gets flooded. It's terrible. And then there's that one child who gets sad because of all the animals that died. And then you go to your next class and you learn how to pr about prayer. And then, you know, the, the God that you learned flooded all the people and the animals in the previous story. You should love that God. You should ask that God for things. Whereas in a, in a liberal synagogue, for the most part, I don't think people are taking it literally. We're just not talking about it. It's like a big, speaking of animals, elephant in the room. That no one's, no one's saying it. And I took a class a few years ago with Rabbi Shai Held, who I know you've had on the podcast. And Rabbi Shai Held in this class talked about the image of God on the throne over the waters of chaos. And in my life recently... I felt like we're living in a very chaotic world. And the metaphor that I want, the image that I want for the power in the universe is of order, that there is order over chaos, that there is a way for things to be. And not only that, but the Psalms say, what makes up the throne of God? Um, justice and righteousness, which is an incredibly powerful image. 
not only does the divine sit in a throne strong over the chaotic waters, that throne is made up of justice and righteousness. What does that teach us about what our values are in the world and what real strength actually is? So I used the language of Lord, I rejected it, then I've come back to it at this part of my life. And I think what we need, what we can do as educators, or again, as anybody, I say as educators, because like that's what I do in my life, is give people the tools to look at these metaphors we use for God as metaphors, to reinterpret them if that's what they'd like, if they want to keep using it, or we can replace them with a name that we found that we like from history, or we can create our own. There's precedent for that as well. So I want to like name what for me is a huge tension that, that we have in, in God conversations in Jewish life, because there's, there's the expansive mega question of sort of what is God? And so that's a really expansive, wonderful, cool question. And then there's like an actual character in the Torah. It can be distilled into like one character that has a journey over a set of books and does certain things and makes certain decisions, which is different from people's conceptions of God. That's like God is this idea of goodness that infuses in the world, or God is like a, a panentheist or pantheist idea of God where God sort of in, imbues itself into all matter. But so my, my defining question is, should we continue to try and say that these expansive, wonderful, outside-the-box, contemporary definitions of God that we have are the same thing as that God character? Because I think that a lot of people try to do that. They have whatever their theology is, and then they, and then they sort of impart that onto a character that actually was a specific set of, of things. My answer that I've come to is that I can't really do that. And so when I approach the book of Genesis, like, I'm looking at this character named God, which it's not the actual name, but it's how we mostly talk about it. Um, I'm looking at this character named God in the same way I look at Abraham or Sarah or Hagar or like a, a character who can make mistakes and who can make great decisions and who can be right and who can be wrong and who's interesting, um, but not one that I have to like apologize for and find a way to, to be correct all the time. Because I think the danger is when you think that that character is something that needs to be right all the time, then you find yourself weaving all these incredible, elegant arguments for things that you might or might not actually like in the interest of preserving the integrity of this character. And so I actually don't want to do that anymore. I, I want to say that in the Torah, this character, which is sometimes named yud and sometimes named Elohim or whatever else, is a character that's not entirely independent, but like mostly independent from my questions of like, what is God in today's world or in eternal worlds, whatever. So I guess I just love to hear from you. And this also maybe links to education that you were talking about before, how we talk about God and stories with kids. But like, should we try and approach this idea of the character God and our expansive ideas of God as sort of the same conversation? Or should we try and look, like distinguish between them? You can see where my predispositions are, but I'd love to hear yours. I agree with you in the sense that I think it's important to talk about God as a, not just God as a character in the Torah, but the way that God is depicted in the Torah is a reflection of the relationship that the Torah people had with God. That's what I say to my students. They say that the Torah people, and you have a relationship with the divine, or you can, and the Torah people had a relationship with the divine, and this is how that manifested. But I don't relate to God in the same way that the Torah people did. I don't think most people do. People in the Torah have needs and desires, and they call out to God asking for those things, and then those things are answered, or they're not answered. Um, and God talks to people directly, and we don't have that ex we just don't have that experience of god at least i don't and i think the pain the pain of not giving people options comes from when you just let torah god be the only way that you can experience and understand god because then you you learn about this and your grandma gets very sick and you pray that your grandma will get better and you give more tzedakah because you think that'll help and then grandma doesn't get better. And then if all you have is the theology of the Torah, 
that means God doesn't care about you. And that's really painful. And if we don't give other options, that's the only thing we're stuck with. I think there's so much we can learn from God in the Torah about being human. I use this idea a lot, right? The idea from Genesis that human beings are created with Telem Elohim in God's image. And what that actually means, part of what that can mean is that we have a lot of the same powers and responsibilities that God has. And in the Torah, especially, we can learn so much. And context is important also, like even just the creation of the world. How does God create the world, according to the Torah, with speech? What does that mean about the power of our speech and how important we need to take speech and the things that we say? Because our words create worlds. But you're right, Lex, that when I pray, I don't often feel, or when I think about God, there's kind of a separation between the character in the Torah and this kind of greater understanding. But sometimes I do think about God is a figure that is outside of myself. And that's something I also try to give people permission to do is not have to be 100% consistent all the time. So what I'm struggling with in my head is kind of how everything that we're talking about today fits in with the concept of monotheism and then also with the idea of atheism. Because I think about it in, in two ways. One is that somehow... I think at least many of us have been taught that what fundamentally defines Judaism is monotheism. And so there so while we might have different names and different metaphors and different ways of describing God, there's only one. Um I guess my question is what does that mean in the context of of how you're helping us think about it? And then Maybe it's a separate question or maybe related to that, but I sort of imagine that if we had been having this conversation with, you know, pretty much any Jew, almost any Jew from Jewish history before the modern age, they would be saying to us, well, oh, so you're, you're basically an atheist, you know, and, we, and, and what we're trying to do now is kind of resuscitate the idea of God through these other ways of thinking about it, but fundamentally aren't all the ways of thinking about it that we're describing kind of contrary to what the folks for much of Jewish history thought God was, which was, you know, an entity, maybe not a dude in the sky with a beard, but more or less, that was the concept. And and so I guess I'm just wondering whether what we're talking about here is fundamentally, or, or should be understood fundamentally as kind of a continuation of what Judaism has always been in a deep way, or what we're talking about here really is a new way of going about Judaism and thinking about Judaism that allows us to reach back for many of the traditional concepts and languages, but but should ultimately be understood to be kind of a new way of being Jewish. I think that the idea that our ideas of God change is very ancient. Um, one of my favorite Actually, my right now, my absolute favorite prayer um, in our prayer book, the Sidor, is Anim's Mirot, um, which means songs I weave. It's also called Shir HaKavod, the Song of Glory. And it's this beautiful, long acrostic poem that is traditionally sung at the end of services. One of the reasons I love it is because my synagogue didn't grow up singing it. Um, and when I went to my friends, I was like, oh, this is so fun. It has this like nice upbeat tune. But it's actually a really deep, soulful, almost erotic song to God saying, I want to know you, God. I don't know you, says the author. I've never seen you. I don't understand you. Not even your prophets understand you. It's, it's incredibly radical. When I actually sat down and learned it and looked at what I was saying, your prophets had visions of you that wasn't you yourself, right? And their visions of you changed. Sometimes you were a young warrior. Sometimes you were a wizened old man. Sometimes you sat in a throne. You had beautiful curls. These are visions of you, but they're not you. And all of these visions are, are echad, are one. All of these visions that we have, these ideas that we have, we're all trying to get at the same thing. And I think that's, that's really freeing because it allows me to continue to be a part of my own particular ancient heritage and, you know, see the treasures in my own backyard, as I like to say, and help other people find that. But also, it's an incredibly pluralistic view of things. It's saying that it doesn't matter what you call God in a Jewish context or a non-Jewish context. The names for God that we're using, we're all talking 
about the same thing. We're all taking different paths up the same mountain. We're all, however you want to conceptualize it. That awesome radical look at Anin's Miro, um, one particular prayer sort of gives us the opportunity, um, opens up a chance to look at prayer more broadly. And I guess I'd, I'd love to hear from you just, we're talking about God a lot so far. And I think for many of us, the first encounter or one of uh, one of the more frequent encounters with God in any sort of formalized way is through like prayer services. You walk in, you're like in a space devoted to some kind of relationship or God connection. And I'd love to hear from you as somebody who does lead a lot of prayer, um, just sort of what what comes up there and also like maybe how it ties into this general sense that music is something uniquely deeply holy as a as an avenue of connection to whatever it is that we're calling God. When I teach this kind of God expansive idea to clergy especially, I get the sense that, oh, we, we don't talk about God a lot because we're just doing it, right? We're experiencing it and I feel God through the music. I remember one of them said, like, we don't even talk about the words we're saying don't matter. We're experiencing God through singing and the music together. And that's beautiful. But the words of the Siddur still exist. They're still there. And I think if we don't address them, we're doing people a disservice because not everybody has the tools to plug themselves in to that singing immediately. Um, I think especially in a lot of our synagogues all over the country, there are a lot of barriers, barriers for who's in the room, language barriers, barriers of feeling of belonging. And if you sit in there and you don't have the tools to jump in and sing and you open the sea door and you read, even if you are reading, um, the words do hold some power. So I, I always talk about this balance between the intellectual and the spiritual, right? Giving people permission to think about it and to have language and tools to think about it, but also permission to throw that away and just live and experience in, in that. And I think both can happen at the same time or at least in the same community at different times. Um, one of the things that I get to do with my work that I absolutely love is not just leading services, but helping communities um, build service models that I think more serve what you're talking about, which is that spiritual connection. Because there, there are tools. There are ways that you can build a prayer service that open the heart and that bring that out. There's chanting, there's repetition, because there's a difference between music that's done for prayer and music that's done outside of prayer. Even if the music is the same, there's a different way of doing it. And a lot of communities, though, that difference isn't seen. It's song, stop, song, stop, song, stop, which is lovely and it's nice. But I know what I need personally for me is that transformation into it being a prayer space. And that that has to do with the way that the room is held, the way that the room is set up, who the people are in the room, who knows the songs and how many of them know the music, and the willingness of the community to open themselves up. And that's something that can be taught and learned and built. And it's something that we're seeing more and more that, that I think is beautiful. Well, could you say more about that? Because I, I uh, we, we talked a little bit about this in a different context some months ago when we were talking to Dan Ain and he was talking to he was talking about uh, his vision of a kind of religious revival. And I said that sounds a lot like how Bruce Springsteen talks in his concerts. And I'm just thinking about the distinction between songs that are for prayer and songs that are for something else. And and I wonder, at least for me, I think the truth is that. What's it's more difficult for me to to think about and participate in prayer than it is to think about and participate with some concept of God because I can kind of get the metaphor for God. I, I'm but I'm having tr I have trouble figuring out why it is that we're sort of praying to or worshiping or requesting or doing anything towards a metaphor, you know, and um and yet. When I've actually been to a Christian megachurch where I was doing some research and they just had fantastic music, I felt very spiritually moved. And so did others who I was with. And even though we didn't agree with a single word that was in these songs, you know, and so somehow I, I, I guess I'm wondering whether in framing the activities of Judaism as prayer and worship, we've somehow 
taken away from many of us the opportunity to have a spiritually uplifting experience with music. And I'm wondering how as a musician and as an artist and as a thinker about this, you you might be doing or you could imagine sort of a different future in which Jews can have access to music in its spiritually uplifting ways without feeling like in order to access this, I have to put my mind at the door or put my true beliefs at, uh, you know aside. That's so interesting. I'm thinking about my own experiences watching and being a part of Christian worship services where I've also been moved by things that I don't personally believe in and at concerts. And what connects them for me is not just that there's beautiful music happening, but that either I or the people around me are feeling it so strongly Mm -hmm. and they aren't afraid to show that feeling. Mm -hmm. I, it's something that I don't know. I talk to people that we envy about, in Christian worship spaces, the freedom that people have to put their hands in the air and close their eyes and stand up and just exist and open themselves to that feeling. I think we're still a lot in a lot of ways very Protestant and buttoned up in the way that we pray, mm. in the way that our buildings are structured, right? We inherited these synagogues that were built in the 40s, 50s, and 60s to look like Protestant churches, and we're very frontal-facing and we have this book that we sit and then we stand and it's, it's, it can be very robotic, but you know, at a, at a concert, at a Bruce Springsteen concert, people must be thrilled to be there. And there's like a shining on their faces and they're singing along because they know the words and a song comes on that they know. And they, it reminds them of this beautiful thing and it fills their heart and they feel free to express themselves in this crowd of other people who they feel connected to maybe that's something that we can try to capture. And maybe we can do it within um, context of concerts as well as context of prayer. I'm thinking about Nava Tehila in Jerusalem, this prayer group, but also I'd say global phenomenon that at least for me as a Jewish musician and prayer leader, I see is fundamentally changing the way that we pray in really beautiful and important ways and giving us that permission. They run once monthly Friday night services but they also do concerts at, you know, the bus station where, you know, hundreds of people come and are having this beautiful, joyous, prayerful experience in a context that's not a prayer context. Again, it's, it's focusing on that feeling, that feeling of, of connection, that, that feeling of euphoria that's beautiful and important and something I think that we crave in our souls as, as human beings. So we've 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 come a long way in the conversation and we haven't actually talked about something that I think is really fascinating which is your organizational name God, the God project um and it, less that it's the God project and more that it's really the G exclamation point D project um and that's a, for many of our listeners it won't be so new but it might be new for some to see God spelled out G exclamation point D People might have seen G dash D, et cetera. But I think that there's a variety of like implicit under undercover possible theological statements that could be happening by the assertion that is that you're making, I think, that we could or should spell God G exclamation point D. But it also is part of this history of initially not saying that four-letter Hebrew name of God, but sort of carrying that into English. And I bring that up because um, all of the names, when we talk about there's there's lots of names of God, and whether it's, you know, 70 faces or 100 or like, often in those conversations, it's there are that many Hebrew names of God that are from a mixture of a few thousand years ago or a few hundred years ago. Um, But the idea that like, an English word, even the word God itself is a name of God, is feel it's like different for people and it's counterintuitive. And I think that the putting an exclamation point in G D sort of says this English word now is kind of like a name of God that needs to not be spelled out, which I love. Uh, for a while I was resistant to it and I was like, no, 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 the real name is this other name in a different language. But I actually think there's something beautiful happening there. So not a question, really, but now I'll ask the question. When you use G exclamation point D, 
what are you looking to convey there and how does it contribute to your project project of doing God, experiencing God, talking about God differently? That's beautiful. See, I've never heard that interpretation before. Um, I have my own particular reason for spelling it that way that I'll share, but the real reason I'm glad that I chose to do it is because it leaves it open to interpretation. And that is just to teach us that we all read the same word and the same symbols and have our own ideas of it, which is something that I value more and more about Judaism is that we can all do a practice or read a prayer or read a story and be doing it together as a community, but have our own interpretations and motivations for doing it that we either learned from ancient sources or came up with ourselves. That is beautiful for me. That might be really the the main thing that, that I value about this endeavor that, or one of the main things I value about this endeavor we're doing together. I put the exclamation point in Davka in the opposite um, for the reason that you said, which is that I'm trying to explode the word God and leave room for our other names, languages, and interpretations. So the exclamation point for me was like a little explosion. Um, It also signals something different for the I, right? You stop and you look at it and you think, oh, what does this mean? And I've also started in my teaching asking that as a question before I give my own idea. I write it down and I say, why do you think I spelled it this way? I like having other people play educator. Why do you think I spelled it this way? And I've gotten some beautiful ideas that I did not think about at all, right? Someone said that an exclamation point is a dash and a dot. So you're putting in the O of God and the dash of G dash D um, together, right? And then some per- someone said like, right, it's the emphatic nature some people said, and I don't know a lot about math, but that yeah, it's a factorial. Yeah, factorial. After a number, it represents multiplying it by all of the integers. So like seven exclamation point means seven times six times five times four times three. It's, it's this right, explosion. Going down, expanding out and going down at the same time. Right. So people have come up with these incredibly beautiful interpretations of G exclamation point D where I only had my one. So I've got... Another, I've got another question that's maybe a gear shift, maybe it's all related. Um, We talked a little bit early on in the show about learning stories from the Torah with kids. And I'm sure all of us, all three of us and many of our listeners have had conversation after conversation with adult Jews where they're telling the, the Jewish journey story of their life. And it starts with... I had X simple, boring, bad conception of God, and I internalized all these ways of thinking about God that were like problematic, and then X. So it might be, and then I left Judaism, it might be, and then I eventually reclaimed some different idea of God, it might be, but there seems to be a really, really common starting point, which is not liking the conception of God that was initially given. And so I'd love to sort of hone in a little more on what's happening in those spaces where we are shaped as children about God. Because you said something that I think could really challenge us, and, and you alluded to this. You said that we tell stories to kids who are really young age. And I couldn't tell if lurking beneath that was maybe an assertion. I'll, I'll make it. I don't know that you did. That maybe we should be waiting for, for some of these stories till kids are at a different age. Um, maybe that Noah's Ark story that you touched on, like as much as it's about animals and rainbows, like maybe there's, maybe there's conceptions of God there that, that are going to be really challenging to, to expand and be complex at age four in a way that at age eight or nine, they could start to be more real. And so I, like, I guess I, I just, I want to hear a little bit of what you conceive of as the problems that are there in how we approach God with young children, but also because I know I, I know that you do a lot of this work, what it really looks like when you when you propose experiential, experimental new ways of working with kids at that age and thinking about God in, I don't know if it's a more complex way, like we use the word complexity all the time, like, but just in a different way. I go back and forth between thinking that we just shouldn't bother teaching some of these stories until children are later and that we should, but we should just teach them again. I'm not sure. I think in part-time Jewish education, 
there's so little time and so much heritage. Like there's so little time and, and so much to impart. And what are the important things to impart? Like, why are we teaching Torah stories to children that young? I think the question always has to be why. Like, what is the point of this story? Are we teaching it because we think it's important for children to have literacy around Tanakh? I don't know how many of them are going to remember the story if they're only at school for an hour and a half once a week, and then we move on from it in the second year, we don't come back to it. So I don't think it's covering literacy. Is it because we want people to literally believe that the world happened in seven days? Well, if it's in a school that, like, if they're being honest, they don't, then that wise out the window too. If it's because we want to talk about stewardship of the earth and being made in the image of God, maybe those are ideas that actually need to be talked about at a higher level when a child is in fourth or fifth grade. And maybe there are more experiential things that you can do with a child who's that young. I mean, people like to say children are inherently spiritual. It's, it's true for the, for, to some extent. They're open. There's wonder. They're tapped into that sense of wonder. And maybe that's how you come about it. That curiosity, learning things about the world, um, the feeling of being with your family or being with a community and celebrating and doing these things together. Where does that come from? And then as you get older, saying, you know, Judaism has language for those things that you're feeling and understanding about the world. And when you look up at the big sky and you think, I feel so small, but I also feel like I'm a part of this beautiful world. We have language for that. We call that God. Let's talk about it. Even opening a random page of the Siddur, the prayer book, and saying, let's count how many different descriptions of God there are and whether they're in conflict or not and whether they talk about different angles or not. It just gives students options and says, this is here. This is, this is available for you. The more I do this work, the more people come up to me and say, like, I wish that someone had given me this permission when I was younger because it's something I came to on my own. Again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to coerce anybody to believe in or have their own relationship with the divine. I want to say, these are the options. These are the treasures that are buried in your own backyard. Do you have a sense of why that education doesn't happen? I mean, is it because, you know, people don't think about it and don't really know what the options are? Is it because they're afraid of the people who don't see it as a metaphor or, you know, who are going to get mad that you, you know, taught it in some other way? Is it that they're, that they think that their role is somehow to teach something very traditional. Like, I, I, I agree with everything that you're saying. And I, and I kind of wonder, like, why isn't this massively the way that we do Jewish education? And I've seen it done really well, the way you're describing. And at a certain age, which, you know, it's probably college until maybe when you have kids of your own, or there's some time of life where I think many people make this decision to walk away because they assume that everybody who's in it thinks this way, and they they know that they don't, and it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I guess all this is to say that it, it starts to give me a sense that there's a real crisis of education. Exactly. I, I see it as a crisis. And for the exact reasons you mentioned, that people feel like there's no room for them and there's no space for them in the way that they understand God. And there, there is, there so is, but we're not equipping people with that. And people are, are longing for and searching for connection and spirit. I know spirituality is an overused word, but it's important and it's human and it's part of Judaism. But you know, people are, are finding it in, in a yoga class or on a mountain in Tibet. I mean, you hear these stories a lot. I know when I was active at Roma Mu, a congregation in New York, a lot of the folks there had been part of Jewish life and then found that it wasn't the way they had spoke, learned about God, didn't match how they actually, you know, experienced or didn't experience God in the world, but they still craved spirit. So they went and they looked for it other places. And then they met someone in their life who said, again, there's a treasure buried in your own backyard. Like you have this already. They just didn't know and they weren't given the tools. So I think part of it in the education is the tools. It's something that I and the God Project are trying to work on is writing the lesson plans, the curricula, the names of God, um, the one pagers with different theologies presented in a really easy to read and easy to digest way to give educators the tools to say, yes, maybe this is not an area of your expertise and that's fine. Just as people buy lesson plans to teach Hebrew or other sorts of things, um, 
you should be able to find resources to teach God in a expansive and impactful way. And that's something we're working on. Um, and then also to work with educators so that they can develop their own um, language around spirituality and God and giving them permission to do so. I often find that Jewish professionals don't always have the most deep Jewish lives because they spend all of their time providing that for others. They don't often take the time to do their own Jewish learning or have the time, honestly. And people are afraid, like you said, going back to that fear, but I think the fear comes from both sides. It comes from kind of the teachers and the directors understanding that probably a lot of the parents don't believe it and that if they taught it too literally, then the parents would be like, what are you teaching my child? But that they don't want to go so far in the other direction because they don't want it to seem like they're going off the deep end because they might just not know that those ideas are rooted in Judaism. So you're right. I do think this is a crisis and that's why I'm trying to do this with my life, giving people those tools so that what I call in my Eli talk, the God gap, that space between how we were taught about God and how we experience God to bridge that in a way that's grounded and authentic to who the person is. We're nearing the close of this conversation and I can't resist asking what might seem like a strange question, but your name is Eliana Light and you do work about reconceptualizing the idea of God. And that's cool. And I'll explain why I think that's cool. So the name Eliana uh, has a few components. One is a name of God, Ale. Um, Eli is my God. Um, and loosely, it, it translates to like God answers or God has answered. And then your last name, Light, A, it's the first thing that God creates. B, it itself is part of the idea of or in Hebrew or light is sort of, I don't know if you would say it's a name of God itself, but there there are some names of God that incorporate it. Look, I, I'm not somebody who necessarily believes that every single person's name has this like mystical internal thing that determines what they do with their life. But if I were someone who thought that, your name would be the first I went to to argue my point with. Um, so this is like a little counterintuitive. We often start our shows by asking sort of what somebody's journey was that led them to their work. But given that your name and its translation does so beautifully dovetail with all the all the reconceptualizing of God that you're doing, I thought maybe as we close, if you could just sort of tell us what led you on this path to be doing this work in the first place so that people can reflect back on the rest of our conversation and know where it's coming from. Thank you. That's absolutely beautiful, what you said about my name. I've never thought of it that way. There's another level where I think I was named Eliana, my God has answered, because I believe it was, it was difficult for my parents to have children. And that goes back to a very biblical notion, right, of asking for what you want, especially children, and God granting that to you. And then light, Ziv HaOlam, brilliance of the universe, is one of my favorite names for God at this moment. So that goes back to that like concrete, biblical, and expansive, oh, wow, that's great. Um, um, I do a lot of children's music, and people ask if, if my name is a stage name because it sounds like <laughs> happy and, and peppy. Um, how I came to this work, I grew up in a conservative Jewish home. My father was a conservative rabbi. My mother was um, and still is an, an educator and a beautiful singer, and our home was filled with Jewish joy. I say that I went to Jewish summer camp and Jewish day school and Jewish youth group, but the thing that really kept me involved and made me want to explore Judaism as my life's work was because I had a, a joyous Jewish home. And what got me into the God work was these experiences that I had, particularly with B'nai Mitzvah students. I remember one in particular, her Parsha was Korach, in which Korach rebels against Moses and him and his followers. Not only does the earth open up and swallow all of them, but then there is a plague that God brings and kills thousands upon thousands of more people. And she's sitting there reading this and is like, that's God does that. I never learned about God doing that. Are we allowed to talk about how terrible that is? And I was kind of thrown off guard. I didn't know what to tell her. 
And then we were learning the prayers and I was sitting there learning via Hafta with her. I was like, how can I tell her to love that God? How can I do that? That seems inauthentic to me as an educator. And it was a rant that I went on just at education conferences. And it led to this Eli talk um, that led to me applying for a grant from the Jewish Theological Seminary where I have a master's in Jewish education. And, and that led to me doing this work. I think in a broader sense, what led me to this work was music, my love of music. I've been writing songs since, since I could talk really, but <laughs> since fourth grade. And they've always been of Jewish subject matter because that's what I was passionate about in my life. And that's how I lived my life, coming some, from such a strong Jewish background. Um, it was a very long-winded way of saying that I'm passionate about giving people the keys to the, to the treasures that are within their own heritage um, because I believe it's their right. And I do believe fundamentally that these ideas of we are all connected and that there is something greater than ourselves is a foundational idea that we need to make sure is taken seriously in our world today. And that these teachings of our sacred heritage to lead us can lead us to be more empathetic, more kind, um, more honorable people in the world. That's a perfect way to close out any conversation, um, especially this one. Thank you so much, Eliana Light, for joining us. It's been a great episode. Thank you so much. It's, it's been great talking to you. And thanks so much, of course, to all of you out there listening. We want to close out this episode, as we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can hit us up on Twitter at, at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, either on a one-time basis or a monthly recurring basis. And you can do either of those at JudaismUnbound.com donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.